On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for one of the biggest hiring events of the year. On September 22nd, Amazon Warehouse Hiring Day will be in your area to showcase all of the things you can get from a warehouse job. There'll be swag, a photo booth, giveaways, and more. Plus, learn about the work, competitive pay, and great benefits. You could even get a job offer on the spot. To find a hiring event close to you, visit amazon.com slash hiring day. That's amazon.com slash hiring day. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. You're listening to The Dossier, presented by Metro by T-Mobile. In the last episode, we heard audio from LAPD investigator Greg Kading as he explicitly tried to tear down Phil Carson, not based on cold hard facts or on a comprehensive investigation. The story of the murder of Biggie has now been turned into gangster mythology. The truth and backstory buried in internet lies. Phil Carson is the first investigator in many years to talk about real work on this case and new information. The dossier was created to provide this new investigative evidence. And as the weeks have gone on, we keep searching for more answers. The theory of the murder and cover-up of Biggie, as it relates to the LAPD, was not only believed by Russell Poole, his work was supported by LAPD investigator Sergio Robledo, LA County Sheriff Richard Valdemar, and Russ Poole's partner at the time, Fred Miller. And finally, Phil Carson, who didn't just co-opt the Poole theory, he did his own FBI investigation with triple the resources and sources the LAPD had. In the course of the last 12 episodes, you have heard over and over the names of LAPD officers and officials who have knowingly covered up the murder, and also names of LAPD brass who recognized that if the Wallace family actually got to the truth, it would possibly bankrupt the LAPD and have federal oversight of one of the most prestigious police departments. I chose to focus on the new information and the new path, but I also felt in order to really move forward, I needed to go backwards to the origin story within the LAPD and the crimes and narrative that engulfed the city and set the stage for where we are now in 2020. The origin story of everything I've covered is not conjecture. In order to examine this, I was able to track down audio from a PBS Frontline documentary that was pulled from the air almost 20 years ago. It has been buried in the archives at PBS, and I can never understand why it wasn't made public on YouTube or any online forums. What is curious about it is in this documentary, it is the only time people like then police chief Bernard Parks, LAPD robbery homicide detective Brian Tyndall, LA district attorney Richard Rosenthal, LA undercover cop Frank Leica, Russell Poole, 
and District Attorney Gil Garcetti all went on the record in a profound way about the scandals that were rocking the police department. It is audio I've been trying to track down for years because it's the origin to understand the wheels of power and the complexity of why a smokescreen was created that lingers here in 2020 around Biggie's death. You might ask why analyze this audio so in depth? Well, I feel very strongly all of this information are pieces of a puzzle, even a PBS documentary. It's evidence of the critical and vital mistakes that were made and the cold calculating cover-up that followed. Here are pieces of the audio that I will analyze in depth from Frontline on PBS. If there's one recent event that illuminates the predicament of the LAPD, it's a road rage incident that happened to one of its own. My forte is in narcotics. I'm a born and raised dope cop. And that's all I ever wanted to do. And in L.A., that's pretty easy to do. And we went out and rocked and rolled. We did our job. We had a lot of fun. This is audio of LAPD undercover narcotics officer Frank Liga and one of the only times he ever sat down to talk to the media about the shooting of fellow LAPD officer Kevin Gaines. I've tried to get Frank Liga to talk, but I've been unsuccessful. One day in the spring of 1997, Detective Frank Liga was in plain clothes driving back to the station house. I was stopped at a light, number one car, sitting there, in my own business. And then I heard rap music. And I looked over to my left and saw a green Montero with a male black in the driver's seat. And then our eyes met. You know, he threatened me, punk, I'll put a cap in your ass. And I said, excuse me? And then, then the hand motions, you know, he starts doing this. He's like, here, I'll kick him out of ah, punk. You know? And I'm going, he goes, pull over, let's, you know, he wants to fight. He was a stone-cold gangster. In my training experience, this guy had I'm a gang member written all over him. So at that point, the light turned green. I pulled forward, and we went through the intersection. And I'm watching him in the mirror. I look forward and I, I'm, I'm now going to be stopped in traffic. And uh, he's coming. I got on my radio and I announced, hey, I got a problem. I got a black guy in a green Montero and he may have a gun. I need help. Get up here. And then I unbuckle my seatbelt and I take my gun out, put it in my waist, just right against the door and on my, on my lap. He pulls up alongside of me. He stops. And he comes across and he leans over the passenger seat and extends his arm and points the gun at me and yells, I'll cap you, mother. I bring my right arm over my left shoulder. I fire around at him. I look back at him and he's, the, the gun is still pointing at me. And I fire the second round. And after I fire the second round, I almost could hear the impact, the thud of the, the, the round hitting him. But I definitely saw it in his face. We were only nine feet away, nine feet apart, and his eyes got really big, and he, he got this grimace on his face. And his arm went from this position here right straight to the steering wheel. It didn't do one of these deals. It went right to the steering wheel, and he accelerated. I could tell by the look in his eyes that I hit him, I hit him hard. And as he pulls into the gas station, the car just, the momentum just stopped. It went, ooh. The driver was dead. 
two things you have to understand here is that the shooting between Frank Liga and Kevin Gaines took place on March 18, 1997. This is merely nine days after Biggie was shot and killed. For years now, sources have told me that it is possible that Kevin Gaines was working undercover. It could possibly explain his confrontation with Liga. Another rumor is that Liga has not been telling the truth, and he and Kevin Gaines had a prior relationship. You know, not to be callous or cold or anything, but I kind of thought, good. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's the nature of the beast. All I knew was that I just shot a black police officer, and that was going to cause a lot of problems. How do you know that? History of LAPD. Rodney King, 92 riots, O.J. Simpson trial, Mark Furman issue, Johnny Cochran. Now me. Context is everything. This shooting any other time is just another shooting. But after the L.A. riots, O.J. Simpson, and Johnny Cochran, this shooting is a defining fuck-up inside the LAPD that would have implications for years to come. And it was the match that lit the kindling of corruption that is left at the doorstep of history here in 2020. The echoes of the O.J. trial were still in the air when Johnny Cochran took up the case of that road rage incident. To Cochran, it was as clear as black and white. A black man killed by a white cop. He filed a $25 million lawsuit against the LAPD. Johnny Cochran was retained by the family, the ex-wife, and immediately, I mean, you immediately saw in the media the race card being flashed up. I mean, right off the bat, I was, I was labeled an out-of-control, racist, white cop with a history. At police headquarters, the brass ordered Liga off the street. They don't want me anywhere near any suspects, any citizens, any arrestees, nothing. I am to sit in an office and sit there by myself. So the lieutenant goes, well, for how long? What's going on? Till I tell him otherwise. He tells me three to five years. So I'm, I'm devastated. But facts begin to emerge about Kevin Gaines, that black officer who Liga took to be a menacing gangster. It's very easy for Greg Kading and others to sit online and talk in sweeping generalities about Russell Poole. In this PBS special, this is the first time he talked to the press. Russ Poole didn't get assigned the Biggie case because he was a fan of hip-hop. Russ Poole was assigned to look into the Frank Liga and Kevin Gaines shooting. He had no prejudgment here. He was following where the case went. He didn't know the name Suge Knight or David Mack. He only knew where the clues were pointing. Kading is flippant when he talks about Russ Poole, the way he describes him. Let me ask you a simple question. If Russ Poole wasn't respected inside the LAPD, why did they give him the Liga Gaines shooting to handle and investigate? The case was the most sensitive investigation done inside the LAPD, arguably since OJ. After the shooting, there was four or five other witnesses that had called LAPD to report that the same officer, Gaines, had either badged or brandished his gun in similar road rage type incidents. 
the investigation took detectives into Gaines' off-duty life. Uh, while we were at the scene, we received a clue that Gaines had a girlfriend that lived in Hollywood Hills. And when we got there, it turned out that his girlfriend was Sharitha Knight, who was the estranged wife of the owner of Death Row Records. And that's when I felt that uh, we had something uh, that is, is different from your ordinary uh, investigation. Just the mere fact that Gaines was associated with that company. To me, it was a, an organized crime group. Having experience and knowledge of death row and blood gang members being involved in the drug trade, uh, it warranted further investigation. Detectives discovered that Gaines was, as they say, living large for a guy on a policeman's salary. He had nine credit cards in his wallet and a bill for $952 at Monty's Steakhouse, a preferred death row hangout. Kevin Gaines was beginning to look like a bad apple. I've stated that the cover-up of the murder of Biggie really started under the administration of LAPD Chief Bernard Parks. Rarely has he ever spoken about these events. I would argue his interview in Frontline is the most forthcoming I've ever heard him. In other interviews, Parks has the air of a polished politician not a police chief. Parks was calculating, and his rise to power was managed with cunning and hard work. His mistakes handling the rogue cops inside his department, I feel, will always follow what is a profound legacy. I think it raises flags to us and me personally when we realize and looking at his background he had some very interesting relationships with what we consider some of the uh, criminal element in our city. Then, investigators discovered that Kevin Gaines wasn't the only officer with ties to Death Row. Off-duty cops could make good money working security for Death Row Records. Some of our officers in working off-duty began, they were heavily involved in the whole hip-hop culture, providing security uh, for many of the rappers that were involved with other kinds of crimes. These things began to reflect a completely different view of some of our personnel than we had before. Let me break this down further for you really to understand as the next event really defines how crazy the LAPD was in the late 90s. The Biggie murder happens in March of 97. Then, Liga Gaines, two major incidents. But in November, this is when LAPD officer David Mack decides to walk into a Bank of America with a disguise on and automatic weapons and rob close to $800,000. If Chief Parks thought he had his hands full with Biggie, what do you do when a cop that you personally recruited robs a fucking bank? That's right. Chief Parks was known to recruit cops and groom them. David Mack was a star athlete at the University of Oregon, and Parks personally handpicked him for the department. On November 6, 1997, near downtown, two gunmen boldly entered this Bank of America. Security cameras took these photographs of the robbers with two bags, containing $722,000. Detectives from the Robbery Homicide Division were called. 
a large amount of money had been uh, taken from the bank by one suspect who entered the vault, uh, who, who was armed, and there was a what we refer to as a layoff man inside the bank who had approached a security guard and told him not to get involved. That particular security guard uh, followed the suspects outside and saw them enter a white van and drive away. That is the voice of Brian Tyndall of LAPD's Robbery Homicide Division, a character who from the very start has investigated all the crimes involving corrupt LAPD cops. He knows where all the bodies are buried. His name is on every FBI file I have and internal LAPD documents. There might come a day when Tyndall will tell the truth about his time investigating these crimes and what he knows. Again, Tyndall was very forthcoming about the investigation into David Mack. We started piecing together that the assistant manager had ordered approximately $722,000, which wasn't called for, wasn't needed at that time. It was, uh, they had sufficient amount of money inside uh, for the weekend. The assistant manager was Errolyn Romero. It was she who had requested the delivery of the extra money. We also found it curious that the money that she had ordered was delivered approximately 10 minutes before the robbery actually occurred. So when the suspect came in, uh, all he had to do was walk up and grab these two bags and walk right out with it. Detective Tyndall employed one of his favorite tricks. To heighten Ms. Romero's anxiety, he'd stop by the bank and plant himself in a spot where he couldn't be missed as employees left work. Tyndall's tactic worked. Five weeks later, when he finally called Ms. Romero into headquarters for questioning, she was a bundle of nerves. And she thought we already knew who the suspect was. And she said, you guys have been following me. You know who it is. So she thinks that we know something that uh, uh, we don't know. Uh, but we uh, continue questioning her. And she wants to tell us uh, who the suspect is, but she just has a very difficult time. Um, when she tried to pronounce the name, uh, to say it, she stuttered and she stammered really had a difficult time. At this point, we had shown her bank surveillance photographs of the suspect. Uh, She reached into her purse and withdrew a business card. She placed the business card down next to one of the surveillance photographs depicting uh, the suspect, uh, and she pointed to both, at which time I picked it up, and it was a Los Angeles Police Department business card. I saw that it was a person by the name of David Mack, which, needless to say, shocked us. Literally, it took our breath away. I excused myself uh, and took the business card and exited the interview room. David Mack was arrested. He refused to cooperate with the police. We didn't know until later that uh, he'd made a trip to uh, Las Vegas uh, two days after the uh, bank robbery. How'd you find out about that? We were talking to his wife, who had mentioned that uh, uh, he had said he had gone to Las Vegas. She said he had won a substantial amount of money in Las Vegas at that time. And we were able to determine that uh, two of the people he had gone to Las Vegas with were also Los Angeles police officers. The other two checked out clean. David Mack was convicted and in jail underwent a particular kind of transformation. He's in custody, Los Angeles County Jail, and we're getting reports back that he is attiring himself with red socks, uh, red items that distinguish association with the blood gang. and. We'd also received word from uh, some from jailers that uh, he had said he is a, a blood gang member. I can guarantee you this is the only audio that exists of LAPD investigator Brian Tyndall talking about David Mack as a blood gang member. 
Let me put this into a little context. David Mack was a decorated Rampart Division cop. He robbed a bank and when confronted by many LAPD investigators, like a true gangster, he shut his mouth and did his time, as they say, standing on his head. It doesn't sound like a cop gone bad. Sounds like a cold gangster who knew the life he chose. It was at this time that the LAPD built a wall around Mac. And I can only assume they were very happy that he subscribed to the code of the old timers and never uttered a word about his crimes. Through interviews of former police officers that worked in the death row organization, Mack and Gaines were identified as confidants of Suge Knight, the owner of death row records. They were present during uh, private death row parties, and that's where first time that we were able to really make the connection between those two. And when detectives had searched Mack's home in the garage, they'd found a black Chevy Impala SS and something else. He also had a shrine of Tupac Shakur, uh, posters and memorabilia of Tupac Shakur all through the garage. The investigation of the Biggie Smalls murder led us towards a very distinctive vehicle. It was a black Chevrolet SS with chrome wheels. And I believe there was a limited amount of those vehicles sold here in California. And when we searched David Mack's residence, a vehicle similar to that uh, was found in his, uh, in his garage. And then, in March 1998, three months after Mack was arrested for the bank robbery, something new occurred that would make police finally believe there was a real problem inside the force. So if you're keeping score at home, you got Liga Gaines, you got the murder of Biggie, you got a blood gangster disguised as a cop robbing a bank, and here comes Rafael Ray Perez and missing cocaine from an evidence locker inside the LAPD. If I was Chief Parks, he must have thought, what did I do to deserve this? This level of scandal was unprecedented. 10 or 10.30 in the morning, Lieutenant Hernandez uh, approached me and said that uh, we had a call out that there appeared to be some narcotics missing from property division. Our property evidence uh, system was based on a system of trust. Uh, there had never been a problem before. Six pounds of cocaine were missing. Within a week, detectives had a suspect. The property officer could remember the transaction where an officer had been rude to her. So with that, we began to focus on an officer who was uh, uh, had uh, Negro features but spoke Spanish. And so we began to look at officers assigned to narcotics division who would have had uh, knowledge that that narcotics was there. To hear an obviously white LAPD police officer describe Rafael Perez at this time defines that in the late 90s, racial dynamics were front and center inside the LAPD. The theme of race as it relates to Rampart, David Mack, and the murder of Biggie is never really unpacked fully, but deserves a closer look as to how Chief Bernard Parks decided to handle the defining corruption. And actually, the lieutenant in narcotics division gave us a possible uh, name of uh, Rafael Perez, who fit that description. He spoke fluent Spanish, uh, obviously with a Puerto Rican accent, and he had uh, uh, black features. Rafael Perez 
on the force he liked to be called Ray, was a former partner of David Max. He was that friend who earlier had checked out clean. They had been partners together in an undercover narcotics assignment. They had been involved uh, in an officer-involved shooting uh, in which uh, Perez had claimed Mac had saved his life. And that's when the name of Ray Perez and David Mac was connected, that they were good friends. So now that set off alarm uh, bells everywhere that, okay, what are these two guys up to? Investigators discovered that Ray Perez and David Mack were partners in the high life. They were both very outgoing, charismatic type people that likes the, the finer things in life, like to party a lot. Very much both were uh, womanizers, um, had a very uh, active social life. They began to tail Perez. Right away, it's uh, obvious that uh, the manner in which he's driving, he's using some type of counter-surveillance type of driving, making many turns to see if somebody is following him. And it becomes very obvious that he's driving and uh, enacting uh, very, uh, very suspiciously. Once again, detectives found a pattern. Perez seemed to be living beyond his patrolman's salary. Driving a new uh, Ford Explorer, Eddie Bauer uh, edition. His wife had a, uh, had a BMW. They had a house in Ladera Heights. They had a house in, um, in, uh, in Chino Hills. Detectives subpoenaed Perez's cell phone records. He had called a number in this apartment building right before the theft of the cocaine and right after. And the surveillance detectives had seen him here. He was seen to exit that apartment building on, on an occasion. And on another occasion, he was seen dropping off a young woman. The young woman's name was Veronica Casada. All right, so life doesn't happen bi-weekly. So why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work. Up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to 100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So maybe you need to get your kids something special or you and the wife need a scintillating night out every once in a while at least so download earn in today spelled e-a-r-n-i-n in the google play or apple app store when you download the earn in app type in the dossier under podcast earn in is a financial technology company not a bank subject to your available earnings daily max pay period max, and location. See earnin.com forward slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. She, instead of going into the apartment building, climbed into a car and uh, drove away. The surveillance team uh, got the license plate of that number. And that became extremely interesting to us because it came back to a Carlos Romero. Uh, Mr. Romero had uh, two felony warrants for sales of cocaine. Uh, outstanding. And so now we had a connection between Rafael Perez 
and a known drug dealer. What is vastly interesting about the LAPD and Rafael Perez is that no one ever really investigated how sophisticated his narcotics trafficking was. And who else was involved? Was David Mack a part of that? Was his partner Nino Dernan a part of that? What is also curious is that Phil Carson, before he investigated the murder of Biggie, was one of the only FBI agents to try and investigate the Rampart police scandal at the federal level. Believe it or not, when Phil started to dig deeper, the LAPD shut down his investigation, similar to Biggie. One day, the cops knocked on Veronica Casada's door. They found Veronica, her pictures, money, drug paraphernalia, and Veronica's brother, Carlos Romero. And in the course of the search, they found something else. In the drawer is a, a picture of Ray Perez in what we call a 211 suit. 211 is the uh, section of the California Penal Code, which uh, stands for robbery. And uh, years ago, uh, these uh, running suits would be used by a number of people that would go in and do robberies, and hence the nickname 211 suit. So we see a picture of Rafael Perez in this 211 suit making uh, hand signs that depicted a specific blood group of gangs on the West Coast. It was a, what color was the suit? Red. Uh, red is a color associated with bloods. To this day, it is all a mystery on how David Mack, Rafael Perez, Kevin Gaines, and Frank Liga got intertwined. The easy explanation is that Perez wanted revenge on Liga after the killing of his friend. Others have speculated that there was a deeper relationship there, and the missing cocaine, the shooting, was not just a coincidence, but something much more sinister. The problem with all of this is if Russ Poole was allowed to do his job, he would have gotten to the answers here. But Chief Bernard Park shut him down. And wouldn't you? This fucking mess he was dealing with would be fodder for LAPD corruption movies for the next 20 years. Any police department wants to control the narrative. And that is what Parks was doing. I don't blame him. But that doesn't mean it's moral or right or just. Then, a new surprise and another puzzle. An additional pound of cocaine that had gone missing from the property room turned out to be part of a case that involved a familiar name. The officers that were involved in the case, uh, one of whom was uh, of Detective Frank Liga. Uh, Frank Liga was the detective that was involved in the shooting of uh, Officer Kevin Gaines. His intent was to retaliate against killing his friend Kevin Gaines, which is no secret now. Those guys were all associates. There's no, no question about that. Just one month earlier, Frank Liga had been cleared of any wrongdoing in that road rage shooting. There was a supposition that Perez purposely took this narcotic to embarrass or uh, have uh, Liga go through a, a criminal investigation himself uh, and potentially end up in jail. The LAPD was coming to believe it had a group of gangsta cops within the ranks. The chief formed a task force to find out. We thought that inside the police department were a criminal gang in uniform. Here again is Bernard Parks, one of the only times he has ever uttered the names of David Mack and Rafael Perez. Also, Gil Garcetti, at the time the district attorney in Los Angeles, would be dumbfounded 
by some of the events that transpired once the case of Rafael Perez moved into the criminal justice system. It is no secret that Gil's son Eric is the current mayor of Los Angeles, again proving the power dynamics of this case run deep. Perez is a good friend of David Max, uh, who both were good friends of Gaines. And I think the picture reflected that we had some people on this department that were uh, in a coordinated effort involved in some very serious criminal uh, misconduct. Rafael Perez was arrested and brought to trial. But District Attorney Gil Garcetti knew it wouldn't be easy to get a jury to convict him. When he'd been on their side, Rafael Perez had always been a convincing witness. I talked to a couple of our prosecutors who had him as witnesses. Said, Gil, he was the best witness I ever had. He was always friendly to everyone, came across relaxed. He was an awesome witness. And sure enough, in his trial on the cocaine theft, Ray Perez beat the rap. He seemed very sure of himself. He made a lot of eye contact with the female uh, jurors during the trial and also during the, uh, the jury selection process itself. Um, interestingly, one uh, uh, female juror during the process of uh, uh, selection uh, stood up when the judge asked if anybody had any problems uh, continuing with this case. And she stood up and uh, identified herself and said that uh, uh, she thought he was too good looking to uh, uh, to be involved in the jury. She, would, she couldn't find him guilty. Four female jurors voted to acquit. Perez had a hung jury. But the cops weren't through with him yet. Why did you keep going after him? Because we honestly felt that Perez was involved in greater criminality and he could be the one who would lead us to even bigger fish, so to speak. Did you... Did there come a time where you thought some of those bigger fish might be David Mack and might be the other, yes. you know, even, even into Death Row Records? Yes. While the exchange above might seem like a trivial part of this story, what is important to point out, and what we could say in retrospect, is that Ray Perez could have been the key to solving not only the murder of Biggie, but the answers to Liga Gaines, and how deep were David Mack and Kevin Gaines inside death row. The DA, the LAPD, had all the leverage. They could hang serious jail time over Rafael Perez's head. This would have been when Russ Poole should have been allowed to question him for as long as he wanted. Richard Rosenthal, the LA County attorney, recounts here what they decided to do next. Now, the task force wanted to nail Perez to the wall. Investigators combed through the property room records. They found 11 more packages of suspicious drug evidence. We had the uh, chemist at our scientific investigation division open the packages and retest the narcotics. If it's cocaine, it should turn blue. If it doesn't, so this is screening negative for cocaine. They found uh, Bisquick. Now they had him nailed. He knows he's facing more time, and he's had time to sit in custody for a year. He knows that the majority of the jury wanted to convict him the first time. And he also knows that uh, I'm not stopping. And the judge is not releasing him on bond. And the judge seems to be inclined to believe that he's guilty of the charge. So he knows that uh, his chances are less now than they were 
initially. The DA hoped he could squeeze Perez enough that they could cut a deal that would bring all the pieces together. The road rage event, the bank robbery, the stolen dope, death row records, maybe even the murder of Biggie Smalls. By September 1999, as the jury was being selected, Perez's lawyer began to bargain. Mr. McKesson says, would you be willing to take a proffer with use immunity from Mr. Perez? The feds call it a queen for a day. And what you do is you, you take a statement from a defendant or a suspect, and you agree that you cannot use that statement against them in court or anything that you learn from that statement against them in court. Rosenthal agreed. The moment was finally at hand. Courtroom is locked, and it's Mr. Perez, Mr. McKesson, myself, and the court reporter. But the story Perez decided to tell was not at all what the investigators expected to hear. He told them nothing about Kevin Gaines or David Mack or Biggie Smalls. Instead, he turned them and their investigation toward a kind of misconduct he knew they could not ignore. If you want to know the defining moment of what everyone describes as the Rampart police scandal, this is it. This is when they had Ray Perez where any investigator wants him. With the crimes he had committed, Perez was looking at a serious amount of jail time, arguably the rest of his life. If you are Chief Bernard Parks, if you are the leaders behind the LAPD, what strategic decision would you have made? And he tells me that there was a shooting incident. It happened back in October of 1996 where he and his partner overreacted They shot an unarmed man, and then they planted a gun on him. Perez's partner at the time was Nino Durden. They had shot a 19-year-old gang member named Javier Sniper Ovando, framed him, and testified against him in court. Now the prosecutors wanted to know every detail. The offices of Los Angeles Police Department robbery homicide... Perez was brought to this building, here, inside the task force offices, his account of the Avando shooting was recorded. This is the first time it has been played publicly. He saw Durden pull out his gun. Durden shot Ovando, so he shot Ovando. Uh, Ovando went down, they look, there's no gun. Durden disappears out of my sight for a few minutes. Durden goes and gets a weapon that they had previously seized, obtained from an informant. Uh, that Durden had previously uh, taken off the serial number. Stands right by him, and boom, lets it fall, and the gun is there. Avando, paralyzed by the shooting, was convicted by a jury that was convinced by the false testimony calmly delivered by Ray Perez. Avando was sentenced to 23 years and had already served two and a half when Perez, cornered and seeing a chance for immunity, finally confessed to the frame-up. Within a week, Judge Larry Fidler signed a writ of habeas corpus, releasing Ovando. Well, it's, it's horrifying. I mean, the, the purpose of the criminal justice system is to see that justice is done, to see that the law is followed equally to all people, but especially when you're a criminal judge, is to make sure that you don't put any innocent people in prison. Good morning, everyone. This is the matter of people of California versus Rafael Perez. Perez's stories about bogus arrests kept Judge Larry Fidler busy, overturning nearly 100 criminal cases. You had somebody who now is saying, I did all these these things wrong. 
I lied, I planted evidence, I did this, I did that. The prosecution then said, we've lost confidence in the conviction, not necessarily that they're innocent. Perez's secret revelations had been leaked to the Los Angeles Times. Efforts to crack down on corruption are far from over. Creating a firestorm of controversy. The furies in this city were released. He speaks a little English, a little, uh, little Spanish, and a little, little French. Police critics, community activists, and plaintiff's lawyers saw their chance. When this came out, it was the opportunity that many of us had waited for, and, and we were blessed uh, to be able to, to, to be at the forefront you know, with Javier's case. Is it difficult? What this problem did was it allowed everyone who didn't like the system to say, aha, I, I told you so, and I've been telling you so for years, and now I have proof. It's not my allegation, it's not my word, I have proof. And therefore, everything I've been saying is true. The city decided to award Javier Ovando its biggest police misconduct settlement ever. It reflects substantial injustice that happened to the, not only Javier, but to, to our community. Uh, and it had to be an amount that I think that would bring attention to, uh, to everyone and compensate Javier uh, reasonably. Uh, and there was a record settlement uh, reached uh, by Mr. Hahn, Mr. Hahn, the city attorney, Mr. James Hahn, and myself uh, uh, for $15 million. $15 million. $15 million. Let's do some math. $15 million to the bad Ovando shooting versus if Rafael Perez is implicated in the murder of Biggie, which is $400 million. I'm Chief Parks and I get a phone call, a call that was most likely made by people who we will never know. And that call is simple. Make Ray Perez go away. Shut him the fuck up. Give him the best deal possible. And let's choose the Rampart scandal to make all the other scandals go away. When Ray Perez spoke of taking on the gangbangers in an area called Rampart, he was describing about the most densely packed and dangerous piece of Los Angeles. Perez told how he and his partner, Nino Durden, framed gang members and shook them down for drugs and money. The next audio you will hear is some of the only existing audio of Rafael Perez and his time at the LAPD. This audio used in the PBS piece hasn't been heard in years. One can wonder when Perez will finally talk. It seems about time that he would try to do his own documentary or book. But maybe hiding from his past is a smarter move. Crash unit motto was we intimidate those who intimidate others. That was our, our motto. Bottom line. And that's what they bragged about. Perez said crash cops had their own code and their own logo a skull with what is known as the dead man's hand, aces and eights, even special plaques for shooting suspects. We give plaques out when you get involved in shootings. If, if the guy dies, the, the, the card is a black number two. If he stayed alive, it's a red number two. Is it more prestigious to get one that's uh, black than red? I'm assuming so. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the black one signifies that the guy died. The red one means it was a hit, uh, but not fatal. That his allegation was that there was a culture within Crash, which involved uh, basically using excessive force against gang members, 
uh, perjuring themselves against gang members and covering up their own misconduct. There's a thing called being in the loop, being involved. I would say that 90% of the officers that work crash, and not just Rampart crash, falsify a lot of information. They put cases on people. And I know that's not a good thing to hear, but there's a lot of crooked stuff going on with LAPD, especially LAPD specialized units. Prosecutors wanted to know everything. Perez was happy to oblige, but he needed a little help. He asked to see the arrest books from his unit. The prosecutors turned them over. He'd go through report by report, and he'd put one in a stack that we need to discuss on the record, and the other in a stack that he was either unaware of any misconduct or the case was, was fine. It was a role that Perez seemed to take to. If you remember the interview I did with inmate Kenneth Boagney, you would remember that Kenneth told me that Perez used Rampart to settle scores with cops he didn't like. He now had the power to actually make up bad cases or corruption to satisfy his deal. It would seem giving him the arrest books was like giving a bank robber a map to a bank vault. He was eating this up. He knew that he was a star and uh, he was gonna take advantage of it to the utmost. Sometimes his stories would change. There was the time he was asked about one particular cop at Rampart Crash. Brian Liddy. Liddy also knew that things were going on, and Liddy also, I categorize him as a very good officer. A lot of good obs arrest. Obs meaning observation. But a couple of months later, Perez remembered that Brian Liddy was really just another corrupt cop. I have direct knowledge regarding some of the things that were written on that report. Uh, things that were fabricated in order to effect an arrest. The reason I tried to find this audio for years is that this piece of journalism is the only time Chief Parks, Garcetti, Tyndall, Rosenthal, and some very powerful people addressed what happened. Once Valletta Wallace filed her civil suit against the city, these powerful figures would never go on the record ever again. One can make the argument while some people think that this is just a PBS documentary, I would argue you could use some of this audio in a court of law to show the patterns and practices of what was a police department eating itself alive. In journalism, when you use other media clips, they call it fair use. I call it presenting new evidence for investigators to understand the context of the cover-up of the murder of Biggie. Among the LAPD's rank and file, emotions ran high. Perez had implicated 70 officers in misconduct, everything from bad shootings to drinking beer on the job. But how much of it was actually true? Much of the press and some of the public were convinced and pressure built on the politicians for convictions. Much of what Perez has said about police corruption in L.A. is sergeants true. and a patrol officer are being charged with framing a gang member. 70 Los Angeles police officers are under investigation. Well, one simply has to look at the L.A. Times. They set the media agenda for the electronic media every morning, and they go with it. That define the future of the LAPD and secure the safety City. They had big stories, constantly. There was that drumbeat. And of course, the, the pressure was there on all of us. Let's move right now. The pressure was on the chief. Get this behind you. 
uh, let's get rid of those bad officers and let's clean up this department. The pressure was on me from the chief and the mayor and others. Come on, Gil, let's go, let's go. Exactly. And guess what happened in all of this political pressure? The murder of Christopher Wallace was treated as an afterthought. Remember the powers that be inside the LAPD and the city, they said it best. Who cares about a dead rapper? And if I'm Chief Parks and then Chief Bill Bratton, I'm burying this timeline of the LAPD as fast as I can. It literally was a scandal that could have ended the department. A scandal the city just couldn't handle. So you know what they said? Fuck Russell Poole and the truth. Fuck anyone for that matter who wants to actually know what happened with David Mack and Rafael Perez. Mack never talked. And Rafael Perez failed at least three lie detector tests. He was treated as a star witness, the cop version of mafia turncoat Sammy the Bull Gravano. Perez gave them a perfect bow to wrap the corruption in. The mayor was leaving. The chief pushed the DA relentlessly for prosecutions. The DA himself was facing re-election. That pressure continued, and of course I was facing an election. My positions, all we have is Rafael Perez pointing the finger at you. That's all I have. A convicted perjurer, liar, thief. We go into court, it'll never even get to a jury. The judge will have to dismiss the case. I'm hearing people say it doesn't make any difference. Just bring the case. He has allegedly made comments while a prisoner that he can take care of any police officer he wants to if he doesn't like them. You'd have to ask, is Perez lying? Basically, Perez's credibility is now turning out to be a very large question. One by one, the guilty verdicts rang out in the courtroom. And despite all the questions about Perez's credibility, investigation of police misconduct in Rampart continues. Of the 70 officers implicated by Perez, five have been terminated. Seven more have resigned. And one more time, the architect of the cover-up, Chief Bernard Parks, sums it up better than anything I could ever write. When it's all uh, resolved, we'll have one-tenth of one percent of our officers involved in this issue. And the serious nature of it is that Rafael Perez, Nino Durton, almost exclusively were involved in almost all of the false arrests. Uh, also, Rafael Perez and Nino Durton were almost exclusively involved in the theft of the narcotics and the eventual resale of the narcotics. Suspended Los Angeles police officer Nino Durden pleaded guilty earlier today to six... As for Perez's partner, Nino Durden has now cut his own deal with federal prosecutors and has his own story to tell. It is a story, sources say, that the feds will use primarily to prosecute Ray Perez. It is not what people, I believe, thought would happen. Clearly, this was going to mushroom out somewhere. There were going to be a lot of cases. And it hasn't worked out that way. And now his credibility is in question. So if you factor in all those things, it's not necessarily surprising that that's where we, we are today. It was not what would have been expected again when the case broke. Lord, I lost so many tears and shed so many tears. Of the world, cause I'm cursed. I'm having visions of leaving here and I... 
And what about those gangsta cops the police and prosecutors hoped that Rafael Perez would tell them about? You get him to confess, to plead, and flip him. He's now going to tell you a lot of things. Right. Does he tell you about David Mack? No. Did he tell you anything about Biggie Smalls' murder or any of no. that stuff? Does he tell you anything at all about any of the other fellows that might be involved in the bank robberies or any of that? Nothing. Stays away from that. Stays away from it. He seems to be, by other people's accounts on Mike's, I've never met the man, uh, have a very strong relationship. I don't know if that's fear or an affection toward Mr. Mack. <clears throat> So it must occur to you that he has some, he knows something. Oh, I'm absolutely convinced he knows something. He has never told us. We may never know the real dimensions of the Rampart scandal or what parts of Rafael Perez's testimony were true. We do know this. It has allowed a federal court to step in and oversee reforms many that had been called for since the Rodney King incident. Morale on the force is low. Cops are leaving. In the streets of the Rampart District, crash has been disbanded. Crime is up. In the year that Ray Perez's revelations broke, there were 136 gang-related murders in L.A. Last year, there were 331, an increase of 143%. Like any epic story, the cover-up of the murder of Biggie is much bigger than Russell Poole and Greg Cading and Phil Carson. It really is the story of how the soul of a city, in this case Los Angeles, was corrupted from top to bottom. The origins of this corruption started with Rodney King, led to O.J. Simpson, and spiraled out of control when Frank Liga killed Kevin Gaines. It is with a massive perspective in all the information that one can see piece by piece how we get to Phil Carson and where the case stands here in 2020. To ignore all the information leading up to March 9, 1997, when Biggie was killed, is sort of like where we stand today with politics and democracy. President Obama said it best recently when he stated If we don't have the capacity to distinguish what's true from what's false, the marketplace of ideas doesn't work. And by definition, our democracy doesn't work. 